0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Lesson by Jessamine West.
1: Hey, Curly, he called softly, how you feel this morning? Feel like a prize baby beef? Feel like the best steer in California?
0: The story was chosen by Sherman Alexie, whose stories have been appearing in The New Yorker for more than a decade. He's published almost 20 books of fiction and poetry. His new story collection, Blasphemy, New and Selected Stories, is just out this month from Grove Press. He joins me from KUOW in Seattle. Hi, Sherman.
1: Hi, Deborah.
0: Now, Jessamine West was a Quaker who lived in Indiana and in California. She published 10 stories in The New Yorker between 1948 and 1970, as well as a handful of poems. She wrote almost 20 books and several screenplays, but I knew very little about her before I started preparing for this podcast. How did you first find her work?
1: I looked up The New Yorker. I put New Yorker, rural writer of short stories.
0: <laughs> Had You you hadn't read her before that?
1: No, I hadn't. Oh, that's so, fabulous. So, uh, you know, I decided, uh, well, one of the things, I mean, people certainly identify me as a Native American and mostly urban these days, but uh, nobody thinks of me as a small town guy, and I'm sure nobody ever thinks of me as being partly raised in a farm town and worked and lived around and you know, was trampled by various livestock. So I wanted to look for a story that represented that.
0: And when you read this for the first time, it made a big impression on you?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the sacrifices you have to make as a kid on a farm, you know, you can't help but fall in love with your animals, and yet your animals are going to be food. So that painful moment when you realize that, and I saw that among a lot of my friends, or even worse, I saw how jaded a 15-year-old can be, how jaded a 13-year-old can be when it comes to the animals they love.
0: Now, this this story is about a a 13-year-old who um, enters his prize steer in a competition at a county fair. Is that an experience you ever had?
1: No, I never showed an animal. But uh, I was actually in the Future Farmers of America, which is referenced in the story, And I was president my senior year of the Future Farmers of America, so I spent a lot of time being sort of a manager and organizer of the other kids who were showing their animals at the fair.
0: And when you read this story, was there something in the writing or in the characterizations that pulled you in?
1: Well, what I was really impressed by and and really got me was, you know, the story started out focusing on the boy, focusing on a kid named John Thomas, But then it switched over to the point of view of his sister, Joe, And that switch was fascinating to me, the notion that you think this is going to be John Thomas as the protagonist, but it really became the sister's view of what happened after that. And I remember as I read it thinking, you know, I'm pretty sure only a female would have made that switch. A female writer Mm -hmm. would have made that switch and switched from the boy to the girl. And the sort of longing of a teenage girl... Uh, the fact that she sleeps naked and is constantly dreaming about her boyfriend, Nikki, and sort of evading the question about how much she likes him to her father. So that farm girl became an essential part of the story as well. It's still mysterious to me. I keep reading the story trying to get a grasp on the meaning of her femininity in the midst of all that.
0: Well, that's great. We can talk about that more in detail after you read the story. And now here's Sherman Alexi reading Jessamine West's story, The Lesson.
1: John Thomas had awakened, thinking of Curly. Or rather, when he woke up, he did not stop thinking of Curly. For all night he had been with the young steer, encouraging him, patting him on his curling forelock, leading him before the admiring judges. The boy was wide awake now, yet Curly's image was still as strongly with him as in the dream, the heavy shoulders. The great barrel, the short legs, the red coat shining with health and with the many brushings John Thomas had given it, and Curly's face. The boy's own face crinkled happily as he thought of it and then turned scornful as he thought of the people who said one baby beef was just like another. Curly looked at you with intelligence. His eyes weren't just hairless spots on his head, like the eyes of most baby beefs. They showed that Curly knew when eating time had come, and that he understood the difference between being told he was a lazy old cuss and a prize-winning baby beef. You had only to say to him, You poor old steer. And he put his head down and looked at you as much as to say he knew it was true and not to kid him about it. John Thomas remembered a hundred humors and shrewdnesses of Curly's, and lay in bed smiling about them, the way he had of getting the last bite of mash out of his feed pail and his cleverness in evading the vet and how he would lunge at Wolf when the collie barked at him. This is the day, John Thomas said aloud. This is the day. Across the hall came a girl's sleepy voice. Johnny... You promised to be quiet. John Thomas didn't answer. No use arguing with Joe when she was sleepy. He sat up and slipped his arms into the sleeves of his bathrobe and then stepped onto the floorboards, which were so much cooler than the air, and walked slowly, because he wanted so much to walk fast to the window. There Curly was. Standing with his nose over the corral fence, looking up toward John Thomas's window. Curly acts as if he knows. The boy thought. I bet he does know. Hey, Curly! He called softly. How you feel this morning? Feel like a prize baby beef? Feel like the best steer in California? First prize for Curly. Curly swished his tail. Don't you worry, Curly. You are the best. John Thomas knew he was going to have to go in and talk to Joe, even though she'd be mad at being waked so early. If he stood another minute looking at Curly, so beautiful in his clean corral, with the long blue early morning shadows of the eucalyptus falling across it, and listening to the meadowlarks off in the alfalfa, and remembering that this was the day, he'd give a whoop, and that would make both Joe and Pop mad. He tiptoed across the hall, opened his sister's door, and looked at her room with distaste. Grown-up girls like Joe, almost 20, ought to be neater. All girls ought to be neater. The clothes Joe had taken off before she went to sleep made a path from her door to her bed, starting with her shoes and hat and ending with her underwear. Curly's corrals neater, he thought, and said, It's time to get up, Joe. Joe rolled over on her face and groaned. John Thomas stepped over Joe's clothes and sat down on the edge of the bed. Joe groaned again. "'Please don't wake me up yet, Johnny,' she said. "'You're already awake. You're talking. "'I'm talking in my sleep. "'I don't care if you don't wake up, if you'll talk. "'I've seen Curly already. He looks pretty good. "'He looks like he knows it's the day. "'He's dead wrong, then. It's still the night.' "'John Thomas laughed. "'If he got Joe to arguing, she'd wake up. "'It's six o'clock,' he said. "'Joe, still face down, raised herself on one elbow "'and looked at her wristwatch. "'Then she whirled onto her back, "'stuck one leg out from under the sheet "'and gave her brother a kick that set him down on the floor with a thud. "'Why, John Thomas Hobhouse,' she said indignantly, "'it's only 5.15 and Nicky didn't get me home until 2.' You're so kind to that damned old steer of yours, but you don't care whether your own sister gets any sleep or not. John Thomas bounced back onto the bed. Joe looked at him sharply, and he knew what was to come. What have you got on under that bathrobe, John Thomas Hobhouse, she demanded. Did you sleep in your underwear last night? I slept in my shorts. That's a filthy thing to do. You say it's filthy if I don't wear them in the daytime and filthy if I do wear them at night. What's daylight or dark got to do with it? Now if I... Look, Johnny, let's not get started on that. There are some things you're going to have to do that aren't reasonable. Once school starts, you'll be spending some nights with the other boys and their mothers will be saying, I don't look after you and let you sleep in your underwear. I don't do it away from home, Joe. But it was so hot last night. You tell Mrs. Haney to do my Ducks Up special for today? Boy, wait till you see me and Curly go by the grandstand. Wait till you see us in the ring when Curly wins. When Curly wins, maybe he won't win, Johnny. Maybe the judges won't see his best, but they will if they're any good. John Thomas lay on his stomach, hanging his head over the edge of the bed until his long pompadour spread out on the floor like a dust mop and his face was out of Joe's sight. I prayed about today, he said. Did you, Johnny? Yep, but I didn't think it was fair to pray for Curly to win. He heaved himself up and down so that his hair flicked back and forth across the floor. A lot of kids probably did pray they'd win, though. Joe regarded him with tenderness and amazement. "'I never would have thought most of the kids who go to the fair "'had ever heard of praying,' she said. "'Oh, sure, they all heard of it,' Johnny said. "'And when it comes to something important like this, "'they all think you ought to try everything. "'But I didn't ask for Curly to win. "'I just prayed the judges would be good and know their stuff. "'If they do, Curly will get the blue ribbon all right. "'With everyone else asking to win?' I thought maybe that would kind of make an impression on God. It made an impression on Joe. Lord, she thought, I'm a heathen. What do you care whether or not Curly wins if you know he's best, she asked. John Thomas heaved his head and shoulders up onto the bed and lay on his stomach with his face near Joe's. How can you wear those ten things in your hair, he asked. Then he answered her question. I know for sure Curly's best, but he don't. He knows he's good, but he don't know he's that good. I want him to win so he can have the blue ribbon on his halter and walk up in front of the people while all the other baby beeves watch him. You going to walk with him, kid? Joe asked. Yep, I got to. Kind of nice to have the other kids watch, too. This slyness tickled John Thomas and he laughed. No use trying to fool Joe about anything. "'Anyway, it's mostly Curly,' he said. "'Joe started taking the curlers out of her hair. "'She tucked them, one by one, "'into Johnny's bush of hair as she took them out. "'Remember when Curly got bloated?' she asked. "'You weren't much help then. "'You cried and didn't want the vet to stick him. "'Yeah, but Joe, it looked so awful "'to take a knife and stick it inside him, "'and Curly was so darn scared.' "'He spoke dreamily.' with the satisfaction and relief of danger's past. He looked like he was going to have a calf, didn't he? And I guess it hurt more. Yep, Johnny, a cow's made to have a calf, but a steer isn't made to have gas. Hand me my comb, top left-hand drawer. John Thomas got up and stood looking at himself in the mirror. His hair was thick enough to keep the curlers from dropping out. You look like an African bushman, Joe said. "'Come on, get that comb.' "'When John Thomas handed it to her, "'she began loosening her sausage-like curls. "'He watched her turn the fat little sausages "'into big frankfurters. "'Time to get dressed, kid,' she said. "'Jump into your ducks. "'They're all done up fresh and hanging in your closet.' "'Do you think I've been giving him too much mash, Joe?' "'Johnny asked. "'Does he look kind of soft to you? "'Too fat?' "'He looks just right to me.' But it's all over now, no use worrying anymore. This time tomorrow, he'll be someone else's problem. John Thomas sat down on the windowsill and looked out at the tank house. The sunlight lay on it in a slab as heavy and yellow as a bar of naphtha soap. There was already a dance of heat out across the alfalfa fields. White clouds were boiling up from behind purple taquets. The morning glories were beginning to shut themselves against the sun. This was the day, all right, but he could not think ahead until tomorrow, when Curly would have been sold. The boy made the width of the room in three jackrabbit hops and banged the door behind him. Jo swung herself out of her bed and her nightgown in a single looping movement and stood before her mirror. I guess it's hell to be thirteen and not have a mother and to love a steer that's going to be beefsteak in 48 hours, she thought somberly. I ought to take better care of Johnny, and Dad ought to wake up from remembering Mother. He's been that way ever since she died. But the air flowed like liquid silk about her naked body, and she lifted her arms and tottened her body, thinking no longer of John Thomas but of Nicky. She regarded her image with affection and pride. "'I don't know where I would change it,' she thought. "'The sound of Johnny's leaps down the stairs, 4 house-shuddering thuds, "'and his cracked voice calling out to Mrs. Henry "'made her look at her watch. "'Almost six. "'Joe grabbed fresh underwear from the drawer "'and ran for the bathroom. "'When Joe came downstairs, ten minutes later, "'all dressed except for putting on the scarf and belt "'that were hanging over her shoulders,' She saw her father, seated at the table on the screen porch where they ate breakfast in summer and reading the morning paper. She was fond of her father, but in one respect he was unsatisfactory. She didn't like his appearance. He didn't look fatherly to her. There wasn't any gray in his black hair, and he stooped to his shoulders. And her girlfriends exasperated her by saying, I could go for your old man. He called to her now. Tell Mrs. Hanny we're ready to eat. Joe went through the porch door into the sunny kitchen where Mrs. Hanney was slicing peaches for breakfast. She was already dressed for the fair, in a lavender-dotted Swiss with a lavender ribbon through her bobbed gray hair. Hello, Mrs. Hanny," Joe said. Dad says let's eat. Gee, you look swell. I thought I'd better wear something light, Mrs. Haney said. It's going to be hot as a little red wagon today. Take these peaches out with you. Time you finish them, everything else will be ready. Joe stopped to buckle on her belt and tie her scarf. Then she took the peaches out to the porch. Her father put the Los Angeles Times under his chair and took his dish of peaches out of her hand. Well, Josephine, he said, considering you only had three hours sleep last night, you don't look so bad. You hear me come in? "'Nope, but I heard that fellow drive away. "'He ran into everything loose and bangable on the place. "'What's wrong with him?' "'Blind with love, I guess,' Joe said lightly. "'Her father held his third spoonful of sugar poised over his peaches. "'I take it that you have no impairment in your eyesight,' he said. "'Things look a little rosy, but the outline's still plain, I think. "'Mrs. Henney came in with the eggs and bacon and muffins.' ''I don't want to hurry you,'' she said, pausing on her way out at the kitchen door. ''But it's not getting any earlier.'' ''Where did Johnny go?'' Joe asked. ''He ought to be eating. He'll be sick this afternoon if he doesn't eat.'' She took two muffins, buttered them, and put them on Johnny's plate. ''He's out talking to Curly. You'd better call him.'' ''Dad, what's Johnny going to do about not having Curly anymore after today?'' Joe asked. ''You know he acts as if Curly were a dog.'' Or a brother. Oh, Johnny's all right. He knows what the score is, his father said, with his mouth full of muffin and scrambled eggs. But call him. Call him. We've less than an hour to eat and load the steer. I ought to have taken him down last night, but John Thomas was afraid Curly would look peaked today if he spent a night away from home. Remember John Thomas's kitten? Kitten, said her father grumpily. He's had a dozen. This was the one he had when he broke his leg. Don't you remember? He said, let's never let her see herself in a mirror, and then she'll think she's just like us, only smaller. He's that way about Curly now, you know. He never lets Curly know there's any other difference than size between them. Doesn't he know where Curly will be tomorrow? He must know it, but he hasn't felt it yet. Well, call him, call him, her father said. He got up from the table and stood with his back to her. He can't learn to say goodbye any earlier. He's thinking of Mama, Joe thought, and walked slowly out through the screen door and down the steps into the sunshine, eating a muffin and bacon sandwich as she went. She stopped at the foot of the steps to pick up the cat and balanced him heavy and purring on her shoulder and let him lick the last of the muffin crumbs from her fingers. "'Oh, Nicky, Nicky,' she murmured, "'pressing her face close against the cat's soft, furry side. "'Then she saw Johnny, "'sitting hunched up on the top rail of the corral, "'looking at Curly. "'Well, bud,' she called out, "'he looks like Silk.' "'He's kind of rough on the left flank,' Johnny said "'as she came and stood beside him. "'Been rubbing against something. "'Can you notice it? "'I've been working on it.' "'Can't see a thing,' Joe said. "'Now look here, John Thomas.' You're going to make him nervous sitting there staring at him. Give him the jitters before he ever gets to the fair. You'll spoil his morale. Dad let you keep him here till this morning when he didn't want to, so don't you gum things up now. John Thomas slid to the ground. So long, Curly, he said. I got to eat now. And he ran for the house. A little before eight, they all drove into Verdant, the county seat. Mr. Hobhouse and Mrs. Hanny and Joe and Johnny in the car and Curly in the trailer behind them. Awnings up early this morning, said Mr. Hobhouse as he moved slowly forward to the already long line of cars. Going to be a scorcher, I guess. Flags look dead when there isn't any wind, don't they? Joe, who was riding beside her father on the front seat, nodded, but nothing looked dead to her. She loved the beginning-again look of a town in the morning, the sidewalks sluiced down, the vegetables fresh and shining, the storekeepers in clean shirts, the feeling that nothing that had been spilled or broken or hurt or wronged the day before need be carried over into the new day. The heat made her sleepy, and because she wouldn't be seeing Nicky until evening, the day seemed dreamlike, unimportant. She would move through it, be kind to Johnny and wait for evening, and Nicky again. Her father swerved sharply to avoid hitting a car that had swung without signaling out of the line of cars heading for the fair. Hey, Pop, take it easy, John Thomas yelled anxiously from the back seat where he sat with Mrs. Hennie. You almost busted Curly's ribs then. John Thomas ought to be riding back there with the steer, declared Mrs. Hanney. "'or else I wish I could have ridden the trailer "'and the stair could have sat here with John Thomas. "'The boy hasn't done a thing since we started "'but put his feet in my lunch basket and squirm "'till I've got a rash watching him. "'Hold out five minutes longer, both of you, "'and we'll be there,' Mr. Hobhouse said. Joe roused herself, lifted her eyelids, "'which seemed weighted down with the heat and turned around. "'Hiya, Johnny,' she murmured. As soon as they were well inside the fairgrounds, her father maneuvered out of the line of cars and stopped. Joe, you and Mrs. Henney had better get out here, he said. It'll take me and Johnny some time to get Curly unloaded. As Joe climbed out, John Thomas touched her arm. You'll sure be there, won't you, sis? he asked. Where? In the grandstand for the parade at 10.30. All the baby beefs. Johnny. Where do you think I'd be then? Looking at the pickle exhibit, maybe? Of course I'll be there. Just you and Curly listen when you go by the stand. You'll hear me roar. Hurry up, you two, said her father. It's getting late. When's the judging, Johnny? Joe asked. 2.30, front of the Agriculture Pavilion, he replied. I'll see you then. Don't worry. I think the judges are going to know their business. She poked a finger through the trailer's bars and touched Curly. So long, Curly. You do your stuff. Her father edged the car and trailer back into the line of traffic. Mrs. Henny lumbered off with the campstool on one arm and the lunch basket on the other, and Joe was left alone. The day was already blistering, and she was glad. She took no pleasure in a moderately warm day, but a record-breaker, one that challenged her ability to survive, elated her. She went into one of the exhibition buildings and walked through acres of handiwork, wondering if she would ever find life so empty that she would need to fill it with the making of such ugly and useless articles. Children whimpered as mothers jerked them doggedly through the heat. Oh, Nicky, I promise you never to be like them, Joe thought. She was in the grandstand at 10.30 when a voice from the loudspeaker announced, Ladies and gentlemen, the future farmers of Riverbank County and their baby beefs will now pass in front of the grandstand for your inspection. At 2.30, the final judging will take place in front of the agriculture pavilion, and after that, the steers will be auctioned to the highest bidders. I'm proud to announce that there isn't a first-rate hotel in Los Angeles that hasn't a representative here to bid in one or more of these famous Riverbank beefs. There they come now, ladies and gentlemen, through the West Gate. Let's give them a big hand, the future farmers of Riverbank County. Joe craned forward to watch the long line of steers and boys move proudly in review before the grandstand. The steers are mostly Herefords, shining like bright russet leather in the blazing sun. Joe had not realized how thoroughly John Thomas had convinced her of Curly's superiority. She looked down the long line, expecting Curly. "'by some virtue of size or spirit "'to be distinct from all the others. "'A woman leaned heavily against her "'to nudge a friend in the row below them. "'There they are,' she said excitedly. "'Joe followed their glances "'before it occurred to her "'that they were not talking about John Thomas and Curly. "'Finally she saw them well along "'toward the end of the line, "'the stair like the other red stairs, "'the boy like the other white-clothed boys. "'But unlike too for surely no other boy walked with the sensitive, loving pride of her brother. Then she saw that Johnny was the only boy who did not lead his animal by a halter or a rope. He walked beside Curly, with only a hand on his neck. Idiot, thought Joe. He's put something over on somebody. He ought not to be doing that. She stood up and to fulfill her promise shouted over and over, Hi, Johnny, hi, Curly, until a man behind her jerked her skirt and said, Sit down, sis, you're not made of cellophane. After the boys in the stairs that circled the grandstand and passed through the west gate again and out of sight, Jo closed her eyes and half slept, hearing as in a dream the announcement of the next event. She fully awakened, though, when someone wedged himself into the narrow space that separated her from the stair railing on her right. Dad, where did you come from? she exclaimed. I was up above you, her father said. Well, the boy's having his day. You're half asleep, Joe. More than half. Where's the car? I think I'll go and sleep in it until the judging. I've seen all the yo-yo pillows and canned apricots I can take in one day. "'I don't know whether you can find the car or not,' her father said. "'It's over in the first nine or ten rows of cars back of the dining tents. "'Here's the key, and don't forget to lock it when you leave.'" Joe slept for a long time, doubled up on the back seat of the car, and then awakened with a sudden sick start. She seemed to be drowning in heat, and the velours of the seat she was sleeping on was a quicksand that held her down. She looked at her watch and saw with consternation that it was after four o'clock. She had a long way to go to reach the agriculture pavilion, and because she was so angry with herself and still so sleepy, she ran clumsily, bumping into people. I'm so full of fair promises, she accused herself bitterly, and now I've let poor Johnny down. She wanted to hurt herself running, punish herself, and she finally reached the pavilion with a sick cutting pain in her side and a taste of sulfur in her throat. A deep circle of onlookers stood around the judging ring laughing and talking quietly. At last, she saw Johnny and her father in the front line of the circle, a little to her left. Paying no heed to the sour looks she got, she pushed her way to them. John Thomas saw what she had done and frowned. You oughtn't to do that, Joe, he said. People think we can get away with anything just because we own the winner. Has Curly won already? Joe asked. "'No, not yet,' Johnny said. "'Couldn't you see the judging from where you were?' "'Not very well,' Joe said. "'No, I couldn't see a thing.' "'She looked now at the animals that were still in the ring "'and saw that Curly was there with three other Herefords "'and an enormous black airshire. "'He was wearing a halter now, "'and one of the judge's assistants was leading him. "'Unless one of the five steers had a cast in his eye "'or a tick in his ear, Joe did not see how any man living "'could say that one was an iota better than another.' She knew the points in judging as well as Johnny himself. She had stood by the corral many half-hours after breakfast while Johnny recounted them for her. But while she knew them well, her eye could not limb them out in the living beasts. "'Why are you so sure Curly will win?' she asked Johnny. "'Higgins said he would. "'Who's Higgins?' Johnny shook his head, too absorbed to answer her question. The judge, an old, bow-legged fellow in a pale blue sweater, had stopped examining the animals and was reading over some notes he had taken on the back of a dirty envelope. He walked over for another look at the Ayrshire, Seemingly satisfied by what he saw, he took off his gray felt hat and with the back of his hand wiped away the sweat that had accumulated under the sweatband. He set his hat on the back of his head, stuffed his envelope in a hip pocket, stepped to the edge of the ring, and began to speak. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to be able to announce to you the winner of the 18th annual Riverbank Baby Beef Contest. There was a hush as the spectators stopped talking, and Joe tried to find in her father's face some hint of what he thought the decision would be. She saw nothing there but concern. Johnny, though, had a broad and assured smile. His eyes were sparkling. The hour of Curly's recognition had come. And I may say, continued the judge, enjoying the suspense he was creating, that in a lifetime of cattle judging, I have never seen an animal that compares with today's winner. The fool, thought Joe, the damn fool orator. What's got into him? They never do this. Why can't he speak out? But Johnny looked as if he enjoyed it as if he knew whose name would be announced when people's ears had become so strained to hear it that it would seem to be articulated not by another's lips but by their own heartbeats. The winner, ladies and gentlemen, is that very fine animal, John Thomas Hobhouse's Hereford. Curly, said the judge. There was a lot of good-natured hand-clapping. A few boys yelled, Nerts, But the choice was popular with the crowd, most of whom knew and liked the Hobhouses. The judge went on to name the second and third prize winners and the honorable mentions. Then he called out, I would like to present to you Curly's owner, John Thomas Hobhouse himself. Come take a bow, Johnny. Joe was proud of the easy, happy way Johnny ran over to his side. The judge put out a hand intended for the boy's shoulder, but before it could settle there, Johnny was pressing his cheek against Curly's big, flat jowl. The steer seemed actually to lower his head for the caress and to move his cheek against Johnny's in loving recognition. This delighted the spectators, who laughed and cheered again. "'Now, ladies and gentlemen, the show's almost over,' said the judge. "'Only one thing left, the auctioning of these animals, "'and believe you me, the enjoyment you've had here is nothing to the enjoyment you're going to have "'when you bite into one of these big, juicy baby beef steaks. "'Now, if you all just clear the ring,' Ladies and gentlemen, may I present that silver tongued Irish auctioneer, Terence O'Flynn? Terence, the show is all yours. The non prize winners were disposed of first and in short order. They fetched fancy prices, but nothing like what would be paid for the prize winners. The big Los Angeles hotels on the Riverbank Inn liked to be able to advertise steaks from Riverbank's prize baby beefs. Joe felt sick at her stomach during the auction. This talk of club steaks and top sirloin seemed indecent to her, in front of animals of whom these cuts were still integral parts. But Johnny seemed unaffected by the auction. "'Bet you Curly will get more than that,' he said whenever a high price was bid. "'He'll fetch top price,' his father answered him shortly. "'You'll have a big check tonight besides your blue ribbon, Johnny.' The prize winners were auctioned last. All of them except Curly went to Los Angeles Hotels, but the Riverbank Inn, determined not to let outside counties get all the prize winners, bid Curly in for itself. "'I'm not a Riverbank citizen,' boomed O'Flynn, "'but I don't mind admitting, folks, that I'm going to come back the day my good friend Chef Rossi of the Riverbank Inn served steak from Curly. "'I know that baby beef is going to yield juices that haven't been equaled since Abel broiled the first steak.' If I was young Hobhouse, I'd never sell that animal. I'd barbecue it and pick its bones myself. Most of the animals had already been led into slaughterhouse vans and trucks, and the rest were being quickly loaded. A van belonging to Max Market, the Riverbank Inn's butcher's, backed up to the ring, which now held only Curly and the Ayrshire. As O'Flynn finished speaking, two young fellows in jumpers marked Max leaped out and came over to give Curly a congratulatory pat before sending him up the runway. Well, kid, one said pleasantly to John Thomas, you got a fine animal here. Johnny didn't hear him. He was looking at O'Flynn, hearing those last words of his. Now it's come, thought Joe. Now he's really taken in what he's been preparing Curly for. Now he knows for the first time. Don't look that way, Johnny, she pleaded silently. Oh, Johnny, you must know you can't keep Curly. You can't keep a fat pet steer. But Johnny didn't smile. He walked over and stood with one arm about Curly's neck, staring incredulously at O'Flynn. Nobody's going to pick Curly's bones, he said to the auctioneer. Then he turned to the steer. Don't you worry, Curly. That guy hasn't got anything to do with you. There was a sympathetic murmur among the bystanders. The poor kids made a pet of him, one man said. Too bad. Well, he can't learn any earlier. The men from Max Market tried to take the matter lightly. Look here, bud, said one of them. Get yourself a canary. This steer don't want to be nobody's pet. He wants to be beefsteaks. And he put a hand on Curly's halter. Johnny struck it down. Don't touch Curly, he shouted. He's going home where he belongs. He's won the prize. That's all he came here to do. The circle of onlookers came closer, augmented by passers-by whose ears had caught in Johnny's voice, the sound of passion and hurt, the buzzards, Joe thought. She saw Johnny press himself still more closely against Curly, keeping his eyes all the time on old Flynn. She gripped her father's arm. Dad, do something, she cried. Let Johnny take Curly home. There's plenty of food and room. Johnny wouldn't feel this way about him except for you and me. It's our fault. She was half crying. Yes, this nonsense can't go on, her father agreed, and went quickly over to Johnny. Joe couldn't hear what he said or see his face, for he stood with his back to her, but she could see Johnny's face and its anguish and disbelief. At last, the boy turned and threw both arms around Curly's neck and buried his face against the steer's heavy muscles. Joe saw his thin shoulder blade shaking. When her father turned and came toward her, eyes to the ground, she found she could not say to him any of the bitter things that had been on her tongue's tip. Dad, she said, and put her hand out to him. There's no use, Joe. But he loves Curly so. Oh, love, her father said, and then added more quietly, It's better to learn to say goodbye early than late, Joe. I'm going to the car, Joe said. And she turned and ran blindly through the crowd. Because Dad's had to learn, why must Johnny, she thought bitterly. She got into the front seat and leaned across the wheel without any attempt to stop crying. Then, as the sobs let up, she pounded the wheel. No, sir, she said aloud. I won't learn. I refuse to learn. I'll be an exception.
0: That was Sherman Alexie reading The Lesson by Jessamine West, which appeared in The New Yorker in 1951. The story, which was later retitled Learn to Say Goodbye, is in the Collected Stories of Jessamine West, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. So, Sherman, you were talking before the story about this switch in the narrative voice partway through from John Thomas's perspective to Joe's perspective. Why do you think that uh, West does that?
1: You know, all I could think when I thought about the the gender change was that Jesmyn West got into some autobiographical detail. The notion of uh, she as a woman growing up in farm country and on ranches – Uh, remembers seeing and witnessing this sort of male relationship with the farm and with animals. So on the most basic level, I think she just got autobiographical.
0: Yeah, it's hard to know. I don't know, um, you know, exactly what her childhood was like. She definitely had a mother, so that part isn't uh, taken from her life.
1: And, you know, and then the character being named Joe, you know, J-O, calls Mm -hmm. back to mind the uh, Little Women with Mm -hmm. Joe March, so... You know, as I've been working with the story and trying to remember Little Women, I was wondering how much of an influence that name was. And Joe March being a writer and also a witness, wondering if that was sort of a an homage, a literary homage to the idea of a girl named Joe as a witness.
0: Well, it's also interesting that now. You pointed out that Josephine, her full name, is it does sound quite similar to Jessamine.
1: You're right. Yes. So, yeah, us clever writers disguising ourselves so well. <laughs> My alter ego is Seymour Palatkin, which is so different than Sherman Alexie. <laughs> I've written characters with that name, and they're really arrogant jerks.
0: <laughs> not at all autobiographical.
1: No, not at all.
0: Well, on, on first reading, you know, this story seems like quite a simple story about a boy's love for an animal and his this sort of sudden unhappy revelation about the process that he's been involved in. I think it's psychologically much more complicated than that. And we have the the death of this beloved steer set up in parallel somehow to the death of his mother, which we hear nothing about. And there's this, at the same time, this kind of peculiarly willful denial going on, at least in John Thomas's mind. What do you think the subtext of this story is? Is it simple?
1: No. You know, that father is nearly as absent as the mother, even though he's around. He's very terse and actually cruel. You know, especially at the end of that story, you know, the way in which he's forcing his son to mourn in a way that he himself is not. So in a way, I guess you could see the story as a ceremony, as a way of uh, looking at all three of these characters' grief and the way in which they do or do not deal with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you were talking about that, I thought of John Thomas refusing to even admit that his mother's gone. Those words, those thoughts never come from him. Yeah. We never hear or even sense that he's missing his mother, which is an amazing thing to think about for a 13-year-old not actively mourning. So that steer, that baby beef becomes something else.
0: It seems as though everybody in the story is doing some kind of parenting or mothering except for the father. You know, John Thomas is taking care of Curly, and Joe is mothering John Thomas, and Mrs. Henney is kind of taking care of all of them. And the father is just off to the side, sort of refusing to be a father.
1: Yeah, refusing to be a human, refusing to have empathy, denying his feelings. And at every point, being so cold. I certainly think of him as being frozen by grief.
0: Well, it's interesting. There's that, that strange line that Joe says, you know, her father's only annoying in one way. And that's because he's he's too young and handsome. He doesn't look like a dad.
1: And and her friends talking about how I could go for him. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> and, you know, he doesn't seem bothered that she's staying out till two in the morning with, with a boy and, and all of those things. He's He's really refusing to play the role that he should be playing here.
1: Yeah, it's like he's her age. There's no authority at all. I mean, it's weird for her to point out what her father looks like, too, a teenage daughter, to think about it in the story this way and to have Nikki. So, you know, I, as you said that, I thought, well, this was published in 1951. Mm-hmm. So uh, I thought, ooh, sexy story.
0: <laughs> Why do you think Wes tells us nothing about the mother?
1: So we can feel the absence as clearly and strongly as the characters do. Mm-hmm. You know, as you read it, you think, where's the mother? Where's the mother? Where's the mother? which is a subconscious echo that I think makes the story even sadder.
0: In most stories that have this kind of setup, you expect they would build up to this scene in which you would discover how the mother died.
1: Yeah, it, you would get flashbacks. You know, There'd be a structure wherein you would uh, have that scene where you see how loving and amazing she was and how good their lives were before, and then the death scene, the final words, and, yeah, none of that happened. I guess that's when the story becomes literary, right?
0: (laughs) Well, possibly she was a terrible mother.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whoa, that that would be... See, that would make it fascinating. But then again, see, we're left to wonder. And that's the greatness of the story, is it leaves us with so many questions. And in reading it for the first time, I was so scared that he was going to get to keep the steer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, why do you think John Thomas does not know what Curly's heading for. You know, he's he's gone to county fairs before. He's seen these auctions before. It's referred to in front of him several times. How can he not know?
1: I think he was so confident in himself and so sure of his love that he just always thought he would be in control, that he would be able to stop what was inevitable. And what was he trying to stop? Death. I mean, he thought as a 13-year-old Will that he could, You know, grab hold of immortality.
0: Right. And then, of course, the lesson is that he has to learn to say goodbye. Yeah. And that's repeated three times in the story and now and and later was repeated in the title. Yeah. Is there another lesson here? Is there anything else? Does Joe learn anything?
1: You know, in my head, I was thinking this is in Joe Leaves. I think Joe grabs on to Nikki and gets out of there.
0: There's that moment in the, you know, the last line of the story. We end not on John Thomas and his lesson, but we end on Joe saying, no, she won't learn this lesson. And learning to say goodbye is a lesson she already has learned. She seems to have come to terms with the the mother's death.
1: Yeah, and so she's going. I think she's moved on. I think she sees her little brother's denial, you know, much as she sees her father's denial of death. The men have failed her, and in Nikki she sees some dream, a new man.
0: So she's refusing to be in denial. About death. Mm -hmm.
1: And she's also romantic in a sense of, you know, she's not going to say goodbye either.
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting. I hadn't read it that way at all. I mean, she is there in the in the car, clutching the steering wheel. It's possible she could drive off right there.
1: Well, that's what I thought.
0: You think she would do that to John Thomas?
1: I don't know. I mean, as I'm saying it, I think would she be that cruel? <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm sort of flinching here because, oh, I don't want to think that. But there's something in me with that last paragraph, that last thing she's saying, that makes me think she is going to go.
0: It's funny we're we're sitting here discussing it like a soap opera, as so though there is another scene when there isn't.
1: Yeah, no, there's not. <laughs> Dang it
0: <laughs> one thing I noticed about this story is how uncontemporary the style of it seems. You know, I I felt as though if you were writing the story today, you would just let the action speak for itself. But instead West is always spelling everything out. You know, she's she's gotta say because dads had to learn, why Miss Johnny? And and everything is stated. Do you think if that were if it were written today it would be that way?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean not only is everything spelled out, there's a whole lot of sentiment. You know, she aims directly at our feelings, so uh, there's no distance, and I think that would definitely change.
0: So are you uh, are you planning to go back and write any any stories about farms?
1: I am actually pondering a whole dang collection of farm stories. Really? Yes. All sorts of stories are popping into my head. Some of the most disturbing ones, uh, I was at my best friend's house, and they were pig farmers. And we were playing a teenage game of hide and seek where, you know, if you got found, you got slapped around. And uh, so I was running from him and I turned a corner and I heard him yell, no. And then I broke through bushes and a pretty fragile fence and landed in the dead pig pit and the flies. Oh my God, the flies. (laughs)
0: So uh, This sounds more like a horror story.
1: Yeah, but it wasn't, (laughs) you know, and then I think about, you know, basketball and farm girls and, you know, losing your virginity in a wheat field. And uh, when I got home and took off my clothes to go to bed, having wheat stalks fall to the floor.
0: I think I can't wait to read this book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, my wife is always teasing me that I need to write my remains of the day. Right. So this is sort of the opposite, (laughs) (laughs) the remains of the harvest.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sherman. Thank you, Deborah. Sherman Alexie's collection of new and selected stories is called Blasphemy. You can subscribe to this podcast as well as to The New Yorker Out Loud and the Political Scene podcast in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treesman. Thanks for listening.